verses 12 to 17. Um, and I've called this part four. Um, as one writer has said, this whole eighth chapter of Romans basically has one great theme. And that theme is that there is an absolute security for the children of God. And I, I've called this the part four, the spirit of sonship. So uh, the context of Romans 7, uh, the life of a believer, uh, where, where the, the, the Christian person uh, is honest with themselves and, and their desires and their longings are honest and they, and, and they wrestle with it. They say, I, I long to be this type of person and I'm not that type of person. I long to want to do the right things for the right reason in the right way, and yet I find that I, I still get drawn to sinful patterns and behaviors. Um, and Romans 7 ends with this cry, uh, who will rescue me, he writes. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? And so uh, Romans chapter 8 has been this beautiful promise that it is God himself through the power of his Holy Spirit that will rescue us and then will not give up on us. And so part one was those first four verses. We called it the walk of the Spirit, a walk, and he used the words according to, that, that there is a way of life for a Christian that is according to, that, has, that is directed by the Holy Spirit. And the second part, verses five to eight, that it is a mindset. So the, the life of a Christian is, is not a, a blind leap of faith uh, that, that says things are real because I believe them, no, the, the walk of faith is, is the Christian saying, uh, these things are true, uh, therefore I believe them. And, and my mind is set, I am, I am using my intellect to follow the word of God through the spirit of God. Part three was last week. And I love the, this contrast when, when Paul the writer says, you know, I find in me uh, this sinful battle, indwelling sin, he calls it. Um, and if you've walked with Christ a long time, you have faced this. You have. You've, you've just, you, you've, so forever in my preaching, forever, as far back as I can remember, I had people say, when you emphasize, you drop your voice. So even the very first church plant we did, we bought a special piece of equipment. I can't remember what it was called now. Oh, the sonic maximizer, right? It's supposed to help me preach. Right, it gives me a shot every time I lower my voice. You know, the sonic maximizer. That was something plugged into our board, and it was supposed to take my lows and bring them up, and my highs and bring them down. And so, uh, being aware of it, I would preach that way for a while. Like, oh, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't lower my voice when I'm making a point. And it would last for like months. And then someone would say, you know what, Pastor? Sometimes you're emphasizing it. And, and I can't hear those last words. I'm like, I think those are the ones that are important. And so then for like a month, I'd preach and my, my voice, I'd, it'd be great. I'd be reminded of it. I'd be great. And then someone would tell me, and as soon as they start telling me, I'm like, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say this. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, I know I do it. I hate that I do it, but I do it. That's what we get in Romans 7. There are things about me still that just aren't perfect. And so... Part three, uh, Romans 9 to 11 that we looked at last week, it's like, yes, there still is sin that's indwelling in you. And Christian, we have to grasp it and believe it. And we don't, we don't hide it even from the non-Christian world. It's a huge mistake. 
Well, we, we better not let them know that we still wrestle with these things or that we still do these things. Or I have greed, I have racism, I have sexism in my mind. I, we can't let the world know that because then they'll see the ugly and they'll, they'll think the church is ugly or they'll think Jesus is ugly. No, we let the world know that. That God loves us so much that he is pointing those things out to us. And when it comes up public, we, we, we publicly repent of it. Right? We say that all the time at Three Rivers. You know, we're a lot worse than we think. And so when someone confronts us, we're like, yeah, you're probably right. And it's actually probably worse than you think. But what wonder? We have a Savior that loves us. Loves us in spite of it. And he is using you, and he is using me, and he is using his Spirit to draw these things out of me. Because I have the Spirit of God indwelling in me. So the apostle says to us, you are secure, O Christian, not because of your sanctification. You're not secure because you're little by little getting better. You're secure because God has put his Holy Spirit in you. And alongside that indwelling sin is the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that was last week. And then we come, and I said this is my favorite section in the whole scripture concerning God the Holy Spirit, verses 12 to 17. Here it is, then, the apostle applying the truth. So in those first 11 verses, he is pointing out that, Christian, when you surrendered your life to God, when you entrusted your life to him, your salvation was secure. And these things are yours, not just because you feel them, not even at times because you believe them. These things are yours because God is holding on to you, and he has promised, and he has committed to you. And he is not letting go of you. And so he is reminding them, you know, your salvation was like a, a once-for-all act that happened, right? And now these things belong to you. And so uh, in verse 12, then, our text this morning starts with, so then. And it's saying, because the Spirit is in you, because you are adopted, uh, because, uh, yes, there's indwelling sin, but the indwelling Spirit, because uh, this is you, so then, and so that's what we pick up with this morning. So then, brothers and sisters. So uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. So then, or since then, or because of all that we have said, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provide we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. In the introduction, I have orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and the Lord's Prayer. I know those are common words that you use together around the dinner table. Son, there's something wrong with your orthopraxy. Let's talk about your orthodoxy, right? We don't use those words, but they're good words. Orthodoxy. So you might even see churches called orthodox. Ortho just means right or straight or true or correct. 
So I pointed this out a few years ago. You see my binder here that I use for preaching? On there is a symbol, right? It's the symbol of orthopedics. It's a crooked tree and a straight post. And around that crooked tree, there are things wrapped around it. And the idea in, or, in orthopedics, which was my business before I became a minister, uh, was we would take broken things and we would fix them. We would take bent things and we would straighten them out. A couple weeks ago, my brother was here with his family. Uh, his second oldest daughter, Madeline, has more metal in her body than she has body. Uh, I mean, they did so many things to that girl's legs to get them straight. I remember when she said, I got to go to the orthopedic surgeon. I'm like, oh, you're fine, you're fine. And she goes, look at this. And she stood, and her kneecaps were almost touching. I'm like, oh, gosh, how do you walk with those things? Right? And the orthopedic cuts and breaks and twists and molds to make it right. When we say orthodoxy, orthopraxy, what we're saying is the right theology, the right understanding of God and his glory leads to orthopraxy, the right way of living, the right practice. Right thinking concerning God leads to right living. Well, where does the Lord's Prayer fit into it? So I, I just briefly want to talk about those first two words in the Lord's Prayer. You know the context of it in Luke. In Luke, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they don't say, teach us how to pray, but they say, teach us to pray. And there's hardly a believer alive that I know that says, I just spend way too much of my time in prayer. I need to do more time doing other things and busying myself. I, I've never met a believer that says that. I waste all my day in prayer. They never say it. Um, every time, it's the opposite. And that's the disciples. Teach us to pray. Why? Because Jesus would go for hours and pray and commune with his father. And they'd fall asleep, right? I mean, that's happened. They'd fall asleep, go wake them up. Watch and pray. Okay, we'll do that. <clears throat> right? And, and teach us to pray. And those first two words he says to them, when you pray, say, our father. You got to start with that. that. That has to be the orthodoxy that leads to the orthopraxy. It has to be, oh believer, it has to be that when I approach the almighty, perfect creator of everything, that I approach him with the beauty of the gospel applied to me, that I walk into his den, his office, his gaming room, whatever it is, I, I walk in there and I say, Father, but not just Father, our Father. Father, I'm part of this family that you've brought together, and I'm so glad that we share that in common. You are our Father. And so um, the, the fourth way that the Spirit works in us, according to this chapter 8, is the Spirit of God is sent to the people of God, the children of God, to confirm their adoption. And we glorify God. When we as his believing children say that, I, I belong to him. I have rights and relationship with God Almighty that aren't dependent upon how good I was this week or how, how, how much better I am than I was a year ago. I have rights and privileges 
with God the Father. I have access to God the Father because he adopted me. Our Father. Teach us to pray. In Matthew 6, he is correcting the motives for prayer. All right, in Matthew 6, when you get the Lord's Prayer, um, he, is, uh, he is saying, you know, notice these people that, that go and speak to God, and he says they think they'll be heard because of their many words, but not so with you. When you pray, go into the privacy of your own room. Don't do it for show. But he also, in that, in that collection, says, uh, when you pray, say, Our Father. The absolute security of the children of God brings God great glory, and it is under attack by our enemies, the world and the flesh, and the devil. Um, sermon and sentence this morning is Christian maturity. It does not take place without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christian maturity, growth in Christ, what we call sanctification, it, it doesn't take place without the Spirit of God. So many people look at the growth of a Christian and they say, um, you know, it, I, I got saved and now it's kind of on me to grow. And, and we are to work alongside of God, the Holy Spirit. We are to discipline ourselves. All right, we've seen that already in the text, right? We are to, to set our mind on things. We are to, to, to put to death things that are worldly and carnal um, and, and, and to trust the word and the spirit. But you will not be mature in Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it is God's deposit to us. And his work is in us to make us mature in Christ. Now, um, in Reformed theology, the doctrines that sparked the Protestant Reformation, I want to remind you that that, that spark, those 95 theses that were put on the the door at Wittenberg, the design was not to start a different denomination, right? The design was church fathers, popes, bishops, cardinals. These are the things that are wrong in our practice. These are the things that are wrong in our belief. It wasn't, hey, uh, I don't like the way they do their worship and their robes are kind of outdated, so we're going to start our new thing over here that's a lot more friendly and you can come in your work clothes. No, it was to reform the church, to bring it back. It wasn't, we've got some new doctrines now. No, it was, uh, we have rediscovered the doctrines of the New Testament in the early church, and we want to bring the church back to where it went. I just want to remind you of that. But one of the doctrines, really, was that um, you don't get saved without the Spirit. Right? When, a, when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they, when they surrender themselves to Him, it is only because God the Holy Spirit has regenerated them. Right? And so Paul writes in Ephesians, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? You're, you're, you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, and nothing is going to happen unless the Spirit of life breathes life into you and drives you to the cross. Right? That's why I, I always wanted our logo to be that, all those old trucks over there, right across from the casino. You know, when you cross the bridge over there, that junkyard, I, I wanted that to be like our church logo. Now it's kind of more like that stump out there, you know, that stump with the tree growing out, right? Uh, we've been dead, and yet there's life coming out, right? But, but it's this idea that from the very beginning to the very end, God's sovereignty is calling a people to himself. 
Now, where we differ post-Reformation with Armenian and dispensational and lots of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the area is uh, there is a teaching that the Holy Spirit only comes upon you once you have made that first step. Well, it's as if uh, preachers and Sunday school teachers, moms and grandmas, are, they're just begging their children to make this decision. Like there's this switch that God just holds. Like as soon as you say this prayer, as soon as you do this, we're, we're going to turn it and then the Spirit's going to come in you. Right? And so it, it, it kind of treats the, the regeneration or the salvation really was this my decision and my will as opposed to, of course, I made a decision and I t- turned my will towards God, but it was only because, and now I understand, God the Holy Spirit called my heart to life. So the Spirit is there all throughout the Christian's journey. The Spirit himself is not concerned about bringing glory to himself, but bringing glory to the Father and the Son. And so in our notes this morning, I have these uh, five things uh, or five signs or works of the Holy Spirit. We'll work through these fairly quickly. Uh, Number one, in verses 12 and 13, Uh, The Holy Spirit is our primary aid in the mortification of sin. Again, those are church words in in, in killing the sin in ourselves and in our lives. It says again, verse 12, So then, brothers, we're debtors, but not to the flesh. We don't live according to the flesh anymore. We don't owe the flesh anything. Uh, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he says in a negative way, in a positive way. In the negative way, we're no longer debtors to the flesh. We have a different life. We have a different foundation. We have a different direction in life. We have a different set of values. Right? When he writes, uh, when, when Paul the Apostle writes to the church and says, you stood by while your property was confiscated. Others were sent away to prison. And you rejoiced and you sang and you worshiped. Why? Because you had a different life. You're not indebted to the flesh anymore. The Holy Spirit is our primary aid in the death of our sinful nature. Right? He, the, the Holy Spirit will, will come into the life of a believer and all of a sudden you'll be convicted about things and the way you did things and how you talked to your spouse and how you treated your kids, how you've, you've, you've done what everybody else does and you, you've lied a little bit here at work. The Holy Spirit will do that for you. He brings it up. And as he brings it up, the Holy Spirit will also point you to Christ. Christ has washed that away. He's taken that debt that you owe to the flesh. The Holy Spirit is our primary aid in the mortification of sin. And so you see why it just it absolutely makes sense that when the Spirit comes into the life of a non-Christian person and breathes life into them, and the Spirit is like, guess what? You and I are now on this journey. And I'm alongside of you and I will not let go of you. And every time I point out what is wrong and sinful and hurtle, hurtful, I'm also going to point out the beauty of your Savior. Right? And so I've used these illustrations all the time. It's, you know, it's, like, a, it's like a loving coach. Uh, I, I'm, I'm here to, to help you not be this and become more like this. And when you become more like this, you'll have actually more joy and more fruit. And I'm going to give you a greater sense of life. How do I do that? By taking away the bondage of sin, the debt to sin. The Spirit does that. The positive side again 
is according to the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit uh, means more uh, my sin is being put to death unless I can speak in tongues that nobody can recognize. You see why in many places the gifts of the Spirit become that sign, right? Because it's, it's so easy to see it, right? And, and you can fake it. Uh, and once you have that gift or you've shown it to other people, then nobody can speak anything about it, right? So-and-so has the words of the Holy Ghost coming out of his mouth, so we got to just listen to him. As opposed to so-and-so has the Holy Ghost living in them, and they are become more humble, accessible, kind, and they have fruit coming out of them that looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Holy Spirit is our primary aid in the mortification of sin. Secondly, verse 14. The Holy Spirit leads us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, again, I've told you this, I, that's who I long to meet in glory. I want to meet King Nebuchadnezzar. I just I can't, I can't wait to have a conversation with him. What a glorious story. But his testimony in the book of Daniel said, uh, when my reason returned to me, I'd acted like a brute animal. My reason returned to me. I realized I wasn't God. That there is only one God in heaven and in earth. The spirit led Nebuchadnezzar to himself. The prodigal son, it's the same thing. It says when he came to himself, uh, when he made this realization, when the spirit of God comes to the prodigal and says, you know what? Even the pigs get dealt with. My servants get dealt with better than I have been dealt with in the flesh. Let me return to my father. And when I return to my father, let me tell him these words of confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am not worthy to be your son. Would you treat me like a servant? Right? That is the spirit leading. Now, the spirit will lead you through the word of God. Right? towards God. Um, the Holy Spirit will never lead a child of God away from the word. I have to say that because I see it happen. You know, I, like these statements that are made and just kind of left unchallenged sometimes in evangelical circles. Well, you know God wants me to be happy. No, we don't. God wants you to be holy. Right? You know God doesn't want us to suffer. Well, we're not going to get to 17, the end of 17 today, but what does he say? Provided you also suffer with him. Right? I've always said, I want to send that verse to Joel Osteen and say, can your next book be um, how, we, how we engage in suffering with the Father? Right? Can it be this one? Can it be provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? How many books will that sell? Come take my arm and suffer with me, right? The Holy Spirit will lead us. Uh, John 16, Jesus says this, when the spirit of truth comes. See, all of these different things that are given to the spirit, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you in the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Jesus says in John 16, 15. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and will declare it to you. The Spirit will lead. Thirdly, in verse 15, the Holy Spirit will change our cry to the Father. 
writes in Galatians, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery. I'm sorry, that's our text here, verse 15. You didn't receive our spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, the best illustration that I've got of this so far has been the, uh, on Instagram, there's this lady, and she's sitting on the couch, right? She's got her phone here, and she says, she sings this song. Can you say mama, mama? Can you say mama's name? And then she swings her phone to her little toddler that's, that's holding herself up on the couch. And the little toddler girl goes, da-da, da-da. And it goes back to her, and she's like, right? I mean, it's awesome, right? It's awesome. Like, like the mom's doing everything. Dad's over out. He's golfing somewhere, probably, you know. He's got a work trip right? He, whatever. And mom's doing all these things. And the stinking kid can only say da 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 You realize that, that that's us? We need the Spirit constantly to change how we call the Father. The Spirit has to tell us that we go to Him and we say, Abba, Father. Abba, Aramaic first word a little Aramaic baby would say, right? It's, it's simple, right? It's the simple, simple syllables. Abba, dada, abba, mama, right? It's, it's simple. It's intimate. And Jesus says that he has sent his Holy Spirit that we would cry out to God in that manner. Abba, you're my dad. You're my father. Now, I don't have time to get into all the gender stuff that's in here. There's, there's a great introduction in the ESV study Bible that talks about, you know, when God says we're his sons. Um, it's written in a cultural context. I just want you to understand that it's written in a cultural context where the son received everything, right? And, and so when, when we say the adoption as sons, it, it, it is not in any way saying the system they had of patriarchy in that culture was right. It is saying, as in your world, the son received everything. So you, children of God, sons, daughters of God, receive everything that the firstborn son would receive. It belongs to you. Now, it is absolutely clear in the Gospels with the way that Jesus treated women, and I only say it because I, I don't want that to be a sticking point for you. You're children of God, male, female, slave, and free. All who have been adopted are children of God. They receive the spirit of sonship, and the Holy Spirit changes our cry to the Father. He reminds us again the the flesh is slavery. Legalism is slavery. It enslaves. It produces fear. It produces anxiety. Maybe one of the telltale marks in our culture as we drift from God, anxiety. Who is covering me? Who is, who is going to be there to protect me? Who is going to be with me? Who is going to provide for me? Who is going to take care? Who is going to watch out for me? It's the spirit of slavery. The spirit of adoption. Jesus uses those exact words in Mark 14. Right? He is in the garden. 
He's facing the wrath and curse of God. And in the garden, and Jesus, he is, he is so overwhelmed with what he is going to face. It says his sweat turned to blood. And he cries out in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father. Now he tells us that that's how we call God the Father. Abba, Father, he says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, I trust in you. You know, um, I have a grandson. Does anybody here not know that, that I have a grandson? Um, yeah, top-tier baby. Uh, and um, with new grandparents, people say, what's going to be your grandparent name? And um, some grandparents choose their grandparent name. I'm not going to diss on you for that, you know. But it's kind of like when George Costanza wants to be called, you know, T-Bone in Seinfeld, and all of a sudden someone else gets called T-Bone. He's like, wait, that's supposed to be my nickname, right? And so grandparents, we jostle over it like, uh-oh, they already claim, you know, grandpa, they already claim. And so I, I've talked with Tammy about it, and, and we disagree. I, I think I would like to be called Rev. And I, I, I like it. I love it. I love it, especially when kids haven't quite developed their, their uh, language yet, and they call me Web. This is one of my favorites, Web. I mean, it's great, right? And, um, but Tammy doesn't like that, and so we'll see what happens. Um, one of the reasons she doesn't like it is she says, uh, everybody can call you that. And I understand it. Everybody can call me that. Uh, and that's what most of you who know me, that's what you call me. Hey, Rev. Um, and, and so there's a desire that that, that name uh, for me would depict maybe something even more intimate. And, and, and yet one of the reasons I love it is because for me, that name is intimate. Um, it, it, it represents a relationship that I have with God and his people. Um, and that relationship to me supersedes. It really does. supersedes that relationship I have with my own flesh and blood, my own grandchild. Um, Opa, since I'm Dutch, um, but then that reminds Sammy of my dad. So, you know, we're working on it. But you know what the answer is? Everybody who's had grandkids say, they say, oh, you, you won't get to choose it. Like, what do you mean? Oh, oh, no, you won't get to choose it, right? Those of you smiling knows what happened, right? It's whatever that first grandbaby decides to call you. Right? Whatever that first grandbaby starts to call you becomes that name. You just take it. You know why? Because when that baby notices you and you walk in and they know it, and they're like, I know this human being. That's Poopa. <laughs> Whatever. You're like, yes, that's me. Poopa's here. Yes. Right? Do you get it, Christian? That our Father is saying, that's me me calling me with the most primal intimate cry that you would ever have that is me and now the, the next thing the fourth thing it coincides with verse 16 the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God Tim Keller the late Tim Keller writes oftentimes the spirit within me is so weak it reminds me of my failures and my sin and yet his spirit witnesses to me his spirit confirms my adoption. Francis Schaeffer writes, the spirit must witness because we'll constantly be let down by our slow progress in sanctification. And if we look to it for one moment for assurance, 
we will easily slip into despair. The Spirit witnesses to our hearts. And fifthly, the Spirit confirms our inheritance. And we'll pick up here next week, especially the part um, about suffering. But part of what the Spirit does to us and part of why we are, our anxiety should be relieved by the power of the Holy Spirit is it says if children, in verse 17, and it's not, uh, again, it's not you might be, you might not be. It's, it's making a statement. If you're a child, then you have this. If you're a child, then you have an inheritance. If you're a child, then you are an heir. And you are a fellow heir with Christ. I told you before that my daughter didn't want us to have another daughter. Anna Kuyper wanted to be the princess, not a princess. I want to be the princess. I like it that I've got two older brothers. I don't want another sister. I have friends that can go home, but I am the princess. She didn't want to share that, right? And so sometimes we think about inheritance, uh, we think about that, right? If, if, if we start adopting kids, you're a wealthy family, and you start adopting kids, those natural born ones are going to be like, uh, so instead of getting 50% of the estate, I'm going to now get 33.333%. In fact, I have three kids, and my son Lucas said, hey, Dad, will you just write something in there just to trick Jordan and Anna? Will you give them each like 30 and give me 40? I'll settle it with them. I just think it'd be really funny. I'm like, yeah, that, that would be pretty funny. I don't think Mom's up for it, but it would be pretty funny. Right? The beauty of the inheritance that the Spirit tells us is that we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. We receive by our relationship with the Father, confirmed by the Spirit, we receive what Christ receives. He says in Isaiah 53, Therefore, I will share my spoil with the many. Here's the beautiful thing about the inheritance that awaits the believers. Each additional son and daughter creates a greater inheritance. It doesn't diminish it. It's a greater inheritance. Imagine you're the child of a wealthy family, the only child. Then the parents decide to adopt. They adopt not a cat or a dog, but a human. <laughs> the only child, the older brother, ends up suffering and being crucified for the sins of his adopted brother. The older son receives the praise of his father and is told all that is mine is yours. Oh yeah, and all that is yours is his. That's our standing. We have received an inheritance from our older brother even though we have rebelled against that older brother. And that older brother who is our co-heir took all our debts upon himself. He took them all. He suffered for those debts. And yet out of the glorious grace of our older brother, the Father and the Spirit confirmed to us that if we are children, we are co-heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we definitely always need your Holy Spirit to remind us of these things and to impress upon our hearts this is the wonder of the gospel. This is the truth that when grasped by those disciples turned the world upside down. This is the truth that when grasped by a slave trader made him turn from the terrible sins he had committed and 
write beautiful songs of grace, forgiveness, and assurance. Oh, Father, please send your spirit to speak louder into our ears. You are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. You belong to me. May that truth speak louder than the words of the flesh. Words of the flesh that tell us you've not accomplished enough if people only knew who you were. Words of the flesh that says you've not secured enough. You've not done enough. You don't look pretty enough. Whatever it is, Father, would the spirit of adoption silence those. We might glorify you in the mortification of our sin and the, and the seeing less and less power the sin has in our lives. Oh, Father, we ask that you would do this and we ask that you would set the elements aside. The wine, the grape juice, and the bread. It might be to us a ministry of your spirit again. And our God who promised is faithful. He did send the lamb that took away the sins of the world. And we have received it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.